What's up, guys? Coach Jack here. Welcome to Operation Grip Box podcast, teaching you to live at high performance. This podcast is sponsored by Grit Box, delivering ultimate human performance to you in a convenient monthly box. That's exciting. That's good. And 10% of all revenue goes to help inner city athletes perform and live at high performance. Starting with my Castlemont guys. Appreciate you. And we are rolling. Welcome to the Operation Grip Box podcast. And today I have the pleasure of having human performance expert Andy Reese on the show with me. Andy, how are you doing today, sir? Hey, coach. Uh, great to have you. And thanks for having me on. And Mr. Reese is 18 years in the military. And he also has a couple decades of experience in the human performance sector. And I'm really excited to have him on and have him kind of share his stories and wisdom on benefits of, of focusing on human performance and what he's seen professionally and, and how we can take grab some wisdom nuggets out of that and uh, apply it to our own lives. So, uh, Mr. Reese, let's start with a little bit who, what, when, where, and why origin story. Where did you grow up? What was the era and what was it like? I'm originally from Oakdale, California. They're in NorCal, not too far where you currently live, Jack, and, um, you know, born and raised in the Central Valley in a small agricultural town, boy capital of the world. So, you could probably pick it up and drop it in the middle of, of Texas and probably think you were at home there too. A lot of people don't think of that, California, but it's a really unique place. And as I've lived all over the country, there's not a lot of places like it to where you, you grew up knowing everybody, lock your doors, not a lot of crime. You know, there's one high school, Friday Night Lights, and that's, you know, I grew up playing sports. I was heavily involved in the Boy Scouts of America. It's really where I cut my teeth as a leader. Sports is where I really learned about human performance, teamwork, and just about, hey, you know, hard work, attitude, effort, and what it takes to be a good teammate. And then, you know, obviously growing up in Northern California, developed a, a love for the outdoors, um, you know, and, and you know, camping and being right there in Yosemite National Park, exploring that, exploring the Pacific Coast. Um, and so just was really active in a lot of different things. And I drew and paint. Uh, I was a really active artist. I actually almost went to, actually almost went to art school there in San Francisco. So that's a, a big part of who I was as well, too. Um, I grew up so Roman Catholic family, four sisters. A lot of people think that I, I know women well, but I think I'm just more confused by <laughs> having four sisters than anything. Um, and so, yeah. And then uh, my, so my oldest sister was uh, in the Army and it really set the bar for the rest of our siblings to, to follow. And so she uh, she joined the Army. She was a big inspiration for why I ended up you know, joining the Army as well. And then you mentioned that a lot of sports growing up and that, that is what, where you learned team building and teamwork and leadership and the importance of all those skills. And my question is, why do you feel that some athletes are able to recognize, to take that away from sports and, and to apply that in other areas of their life and then compare to other guys where it's not these skills of team building and leadership it's just the sport itself and there's not there's not much of a recognition of kind of the grander vehicle of what sports is yeah I think you know sports is such a great vehicle for so many experiences and skills that you can gain that apply to other arenas in life and I'm just a huge proponent of, of youth sports in general because of what you talked about and I think it's really the first time you know as a child to where you're put in a situation to where not only you have to you know you learn how to be able to become a member of a team you know, with other kids that, you know, you may or may not know, but then you're obviously taking your direction, your purpose from someone else who's other than your parents. That's super important. I think in learning about that, hey, having to be counted on by somebody else. So in other words, you know, your individual performance matters because other people are counting on you. And, and really, it's not about winning or losing, but it's about, you know, giving your best, um, having discipline, working hard, having a good attitude, knowing that there's other people who are counting on you and you're counting on them towards a specific purpose. I just think that sports provides that 
that vehicle in the context that then, you know, you learn those things and then, you know, you can apply those skills in so many other arenas in life, whether it be academically in school, whether it be, you know, community service, your profession uh, later on that I, I think sports is unique in that way that provides a vehicle for, for uh, skill building. And then when did football become your number one sport growing up? Yeah. So uh, I was first exposed uh, to football probably in about sixth grade. Um, and so they offer Pop Warner football. And uh, it's interesting, you know, my dad wasn't an athlete and I was the only boy in the third of uh, four kids. And so all my sisters are athletes, but my dad exposed me to football. I played like flag football and not, but playing Pop Warner and there's Tri-Cities there uh, that were involved in that. And then, um, you know, just really took a, a liking to it. I love the physicality of it. I was always a high energy guy. I played soccer a lot. And so, you know, the physicality of football is, and then the football being, I, I say the Army is the ultimate team sport, but, you know, football being the ultimate team sport athletically, I think was, you know, toward not one person can influence the outcome of the game really drew me in, you know, and it just was a, just an immense outlet for me to expend all this energy that I had as a kid. And I just loved it. And then how was Oakdale's program when you were there? Man, um, they were just on the precipice of becoming great again. And then we were good in the 70s. And then the 80s really took a dip. And in the mid 90s was, I'm really proud to say, was really kind of the building of a dynasty that it is now. You probably even heard of Oakdale football where you are. I mean, it's it's every year. Trent Merzon and my coach who was there, Mark Malone, uh, really, you know, took this small town, rallied the town around it, and then, you know, started developing this powerhouse as far and, and really it's a culture, I think, you know, that's centered around how the town, it, how we live our lives there in, in Oakdale, California. And so that, we were so very good. We won our first uh, league championship. And when I was there for the first time, probably about a decade, but since I've left, you know, they, they're every year they're in the section championships. They just won their first state championship. They're kind of always there, but I was proud to kind of be on that. But I, I didn't always go to Oakdale. I went to Catholic school in Central Catholic for two years before that, which is kind of an interesting story in of itself. That's how I ended up back in Oakdale. And then in terms of one of the things that your coach did at Oakdale was really get community involved. And then just when I think of high performance teams and I think of, you know, these big time college football coaches, one of the things that a very undervalued skill that they have is kind of as politicians <laughs> in terms of really yeah. being able to get out and shake hands and interact and, and recognize the importance that there's all these different parties involved in terms of coming together and getting on mission. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to the importance that both in sports and then in terms of also maybe a little bit in the military of taking the time to get people not necessarily directly involved on the team to get to support your cause and get behind what you do the importance of that yeah it's a great point you know I think culture and community kind of go hand in hand and I think you can't have one without the other and I think the community vote too because we're we're lucky to have one high school there so you have a community who's you know who's grown over the years you get all the barrier folks who come you know they live in places like Oakdale because it's affordable and then they commute they make that long 100 mile commute to the Bay Area to make their money and then they you know come back there so even given that the fact that Oakdale's grown we still have one high school is you know is very fortunate I will say so and that's not I don't think that's lost on anybody in my town so you have a relatively large pool of, of people who are there but I think it's a generational thing as well and you know so it's like hey my grandfather played football for Oakdale you know so there's a lineage there my nephew just won a state championship there so there's a, it's, a, it's kind of ingrained into your DNA and I think the football team embodies a lot of the values that the community takes near and dear to 
it. You know, it's, you know, the, the hard work. It's a working class community full of ranchers, uh, farmers, people who, you know, who really work for a living, you know, blue collar. Football team is very much like that. Your people, it's very close knit that are there for each other. They've got each other's back to the left and to the right. You've got the town shuts down on Friday nights, you know, and they all come to the corral, which is what they call the football stadium, to cheer on the Mustangs. And that's just a cool thing. And so there's not many towns that are like that anymore that, that do that and invest in it the way, you know, not only with their dollars, but in terms of their time, in terms of their support, in terms of their pride. And I think that makes Oakdale a very special place. And you got a reinvestment. It's circular. you got these guys who move on, you know, um, and then they come back. You know, we've had players that have gone out even play in the NFL and they come back and coach. I do the best I can as a kind of a performance, you know, a resource for the coach now. He just hit me up on the text the other day. He's like, hey, Andy, I'm looking for some themes for the going into the season. What you got? And then we just went back and forth on text messages that way. And, and so I think the continued investment of this, this lineage of people who have played there or cheered on that team in the community and that school is, is really a cool thing. It does sound like a cool thing. And then after high school, you decided to go to the military because of your older sister, is that correct? Yeah, well, it's, um, so actually, so it was really a combination. My sister and my brother-in-law, they both were in Desert Storm. They were, began commission officers at a University of California, Santa Barbara. They went through their reserve officer training course, their ROTC, um, and then they went to Desert Storm, it's like when I was a junior high, and then unfortunately when I was at, so they had all, my sisters went to Central Catholic High School. At the time, Oakdale wasn't accredited for four-year university, so my, being a Catholic family, my parents sent my sisters to a Catholic school, and I did the same. Really struggled there, you know, especially socially. But then my sophomore year, my brother and my sister just got out of the army. They had had their first kid in 1994. They just moved from Fort Rucker to Fort Hood, Texas. And, you know, they came back from a social event and my brother-in-law was shot and killed by some folks right outside of their home. It was devastating to my family and rocked us. And, you know, of course, you know, my sister, you know, had a a six-month-old, my nephew Hank, and, you know, they moved back to Oakdale. And then, you know, my sister, obviously, I've got a front row seat, post-traumatic stress and just, you know, this incredible grief she was going through and so just uh she wasn't she didn't feel safe to live alone and sleep alone and so i stayed with her and so in order to be closer to her i, I moved back to you know delta high school my sophomore year and to be closer to her to help with what she was going through and what was cool is that's when i started kind of these convergences of i started to get good at football and then at the same time all these friends of my brother-in-law chris who's an army ranger guy i really loved and looked up to you know one of his dreams he wanted to go back and teach at west point and so that was one of the things he wanted to do and he was he had all these friends one of them played football at west point well these friends came back to Oakdale to visit my sister and I got to know them and I never even heard of West Point. You know, West Point was a little town up in the mountains where we got our Christmas trees every year, you know, and so West Point, California. So I'd never heard of the military academy, you know, but as more they talked about it and then the opportunity to go there to play football, the way they, they ran an offense that was really conducive for a guy like me and what I was suited for. And just as I was getting good, they helped me get recruited and told me about a preparatory school for West Point, which is what I ended up doing. My math scores for in terms of the SAT weren't good enough to get straight into West Point. So they they have a preparatory school. It's a year long. It's very small. It's, it was in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And it, what's cool about it is it's designed to really get you ready for West Point, both militarily, academically, and physically. It was like a redshirt year for me. I was 17. You know, you're playing at the JUCO level. You get indoctrinated into their scheme and how they do things. And so you play other JUCOs or other military schools. So, you know, literally went on the other side of the, you know, of our country, you know, 17 years old to join the Army and start this crazy adventure to, to go to West Point. And then a couple of things, if I can ask, 
ask, what was the reason that your brother-in-law was shot down in Texas? It's totally random. I mean, there were just some guys who were casing the neighborhood. They were, you know, it was late at night. They just got done. It was called a hail and farewell. And so basically when you hail new people come into the unit and you farewell, it's a social event. And they just picked up their son, you know, from the babysitter. You know, he was asleep in the car and these guys were just casing the neighborhood. And as they were pulling to their driveway, they, you know, these three guys with, you know, one of them pulled a gun on them, you know, actually getting, wrestling one of the guys down, two of them bolted. My sister went across the street to wake people up. It's like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And then the guys in the getaway car, you know, as they were, you know, speeding back down the block to get away, they fired, you know, fired some shot towards my brother-in-law and this, you know, unlucky shot hit him in the head. He died in my sister's arms. And, you know, so, you know, talk about mental toughness, man, and resilience. My, my sister has really embodied that. And I saw that firsthand with her. Just amazing what she's been through you know, in and out of combat with loss of her husband, just through life. And she's been a huge inspiration for me. But like my mission, like going to West Point is I really wanted to finish what Chris started. That's what I wanted to do. And so that that was the first step of going on the mission was going to West Point. That's powerful. And then guys from Chris's unit that started telling you about West Point and about it, why did they resonate with you where it was like you as, as a 15, 16 year old, you know, listen to what they had to say, you know, these guys know what they're talking about. This is, this would be a good step on my life path. Yeah, man, they just were stand-up guys, Jack. I just was so impressed with these guys. Every single one of them, they're all different from different parts of the country, but they were just high-character guys. They felt like me. I could relate to them through their experiences, both through athletics and being outdoorsmen or, you know, and then you know, they 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 were like me, you know, just older versions of me. It felt like I could really relate to them and they could relate to me and it just kind of clicked. And I was like, they just became guys who were like Chris. Obviously, they were good friends with Chris for a reason, you know, so like Chris. I wanted, I kind of said, Hey, I want to be like that. And so if in order for me to be like them, this is the path that they took. That's what I want to do. And then you had a successful year at the preparatory school. And what was it first like yet? I've, I've heard really amazing things about West Point. What is, what was it like going there? And it really wasn't an easy year. That's what's kind of funny, man. I really struggled, had a really good year athletically. I was MVP, offensive MVP in my football team. I ran for almost a thousand yards, really did well there. But uh, in the classroom, I was getting my butt kicked and, you know, about halfway through the majority. So it was about 220 people there. Only 167 went to West Point from there. Half of them were coming right out of the army. Half of them were coming out of high school. It's kind of they're paired up that way. But yeah, it's, I, it literally came down to the last day that Everybody else got their, got basically their ticket to go to West Point, you know, probably about three months before we graduated. I did not get mine until the day we graduated. I was not expecting to go on to West Point. It was a complete surprise. It's one of the, one of those crazy stories where I had to get like a B on a, on a final math test to put me over the edge. I got a 78. So I was not expecting to go to West Point. I was planning on coming back home and maybe going to like Fresno State and walking on the football team or something like that. I was really dejected. And, and, and all of a sudden I get this opportunity, amazing opportunity where, you know, I got a uh, last minute an opportunity to go to West Point. So it was, it was a struggle for me academically, you know, but that really taught me about perseverance, about, hey, that if I put my nose to grindstone, if I work hard enough, hey, not only was it possible for me to do this, you know, really developed this belief that good things were going to happen if I was just kept on grinding and both, you know, and I, but I knew what a challenge it was going to be right away. And that was a wake up call for me. And it was a year of maturing as well. I think militarily, especially that wasn't such a huge shock for me. By the time I started, you know, I'd already knew the basics of what I needed to know to be successful. 
successful militarily at West Point, and that threw me up to focus more on the other two legs of the other two pillars of the academy, which are academics and the athletics. So yes, that's kind of how I ended up getting in there. Last minute, man, skin of my teeth. <laughs> and then how was football there? It was intense, man. It was, you know, a lot of people don't think of Army football as big time college football, but it is, you know, I mean, and, you know, there's a bygone era. We won multiple national championships, multiple Heisman Trophy winners. But people also forget, you know, we had won, we were in the top 25 when I went there. We won, we just beat Navy for like fourth year in a row. We were in the top 25. They took Don McNabb and the Syracuse Orange debt to his absolute limit. They just lost the last second to Auburn in a, in a bowl game, and they were stacked. They were good. They won 10 games. So I was coming in and it was, uh, they were loaded and they were loaded with guys. You know, you're talking about at, in the mid nineties, not every program had this national recruiting base like they do now, but the academies have the advantage of they have this national recruiting base and they're recruiting and it's, you know, and that looks, it's some schools have a, you know, a pool to, it's the academies are a puddle because you have to meet all these standards. You have to get nominated by, you know, either the president, the vice president, a senator, a congressman to get in there. You have all these criteria you're going to meet. So to find the right kid to get Get in there is a challenge, but still, these guys were all the best at what they did. A lot of them were all state and great programs, and it, it was a very competitive, is what I'd say. And then, what was your most memorable story from first on the football team at West Point, and then second yeah. at West Point overall? Yeah, man. That's great. It's hard to boil it down to probably one story, man. But I think the kind of story, you know, again, like my life is really characterized by adversity. So I think about these adverse moments that I had and using failure as fuel is a theme of mine. And, you know, it was a struggle, man. And I, I changed positions. We changed coaches my junior year, just about the time. My senior year, we changed coaches and offenses to where, you know, we went from the triple option to the pro offense. Uh, brand new coaching staff came in. They didn't even have a fullback in the offense. So here it was, I'd worked four years, including the prep school, to make it, you know, to a point where I developed my skills to be able to to get some to get on the playing field and then even have a fullback on the offense. The coach and I did not get along. I'll never forget me. I almost got kicked off the team. And I'll never forget, you know, my, my buddies joke around this all this time. You know, they I had to do like 500 yards of up-downs or something ridiculous like that or up-downs until they shut the lights off. And I remember doing these up-downs every five yards, a punishment type of thing. I'm not getting get kicked off the team. But like, you know, it was just one of those things where it's like, hey, I really had a hard conversation. Do I want to keep going? Or I want to quit. The reason I kept going is I had developed this this brotherhood with the guys that I went to school, guys that I play football specifically that I'm, you know, that I consider my brothers. Now my friends are my brothers because we had this common experiences that a lot of people can't relate to in terms of what we had to go through and just amazing guys. Jason McCamps, one of them, this core group of dudes, just, I wouldn't have got through without them. There's the same cooperate and graduate. And they certainly, I wouldn't have got through if I didn't have those guys to be there for me in these times when, you know, Hey, I, I kept going because I, I wouldn't want to let them down. And I could, imagine doing the daily grind of, you know, academically, you know, having twice the course load of normal students, staying up all night studying for tests and Ivy League education. And then then you're going up and then you're spending hours up on the football field until nine, 10 o'clock at night. And then you start it all over again. And that grind, it's a business, man. And, you know, there's a lot of times when I lost the love of the game, but I did it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to quit and let my brothers down. What does that look like in terms of actual action for you? Like we want to turn the failure into fuel. Then what's, how do you do that? How did you do that? Maybe use that specific example. I just think that taking, whenever you go through adversity, it's interesting, you know, later on in my career, you know, I got to study the art and science of resilience by some of the foremost experts in this. And it really was serendipitous. And I think that when you go through any type of adversity in your life, it's, first of all, it's it's how you see it, your perception, and then understanding what you control and not control, I think is another aspect of it then too. And then, so if you're able to really filter out what happens to you or doesn't 
doesn't happen to you in the right way. If you have that strong mental filter, you can then allow that to, to, it's almost like a coffee filter. So like you think about making coffee, right? You know, so when I make coffee, hey, it's, it's simple. It's water, it's coffee grinds. And if you know, I'm, I'm using my filter, if it's a press or I'm using percolator or whatever it is, what are the things that you want? Well, you want to be able to let the water, you know, obviously mix with the grounds to be able to make coffee, right? And that's the nectar of life, you know? But the things that you don't need are kind of are the grounds and the paper. And then you, you throw that away. If you're able to do that, then because coffee becomes the fuel. It mm. gives you energy, optimism, and enthusiasm that you can then use to your advantage. And I feel like through the examples of people like my sister and, you know, even my own experiences, that of my family, you know, um, you know, seeing people go through, you know, guys like Admiral Stockdale, John McCain, these guys, you know, those are great examples of guys that have been in PWM. You can't you know, the thing that kept them going was their ability to be able to have a sense of purpose, first of all, have a strong mental filter, not, you know, and never to give up because that's unshakable inner belief about themselves that knowing they were going to be broken physically and mentally at some point, but inevitably that purpose is what kept them going. And so me having that strong sense of purpose, a strong mental filter has really benefited me, you know, and build up what I call calluses, man. It's a toughening yourself. And then do you believe men can live at high performance without developing hearty number of calluses? No, you can't do it, man. It's inevitably you have to go through the crucible at some point. It doesn't matter where you go through. It's for the young men you work with who are, you know, playing football and whatnot too. So, you know, the fact that they are going through the, they live day on the main streets of East Oakland, you know, if they're doing it right is going to benefit them when they're going through the grind three days and then the California heat and whatnot too. And so, you know, one going through and processing one experience, if you're doing it right, can transfer to other aspects and arenas of your life if you're doing it right. But I, I think that to really be a champion, to really be good at what you do, you got to go through the crucible of experiences that are difficult, that are hard of when you're going to get knocked flat down in your face and you got to get up and keep fighting, man. And then that's definitely more common in, in the military and in sports. Why is Why do you feel like that's not widespread in terms of understanding that you got to put yourself in tough situations? You got to suffer a little bit. You got to suffer. You got to spend an amount of your life in discomfort to, to live a successful life, to live a fulfilled life, to get what you want. Why do you think that's not more commonly taught? Yeah, no, it's a great point. You know, I mean, from a macro perspective, I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's an unwillingness to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Like, you know, we have, you know, especially in the United States, you know, the Western world, like we have so much that is available to us, you know, instantaneously at our fingertips. You know, we don't have to work very hard to go get our fuel to food, to earn a living, to especially, you know, it's a generational thing too. We haven't had to go through the things that our, our parents and grandparents have. And so that, that I think the work ethic is one of them. You know, are you willing to put the work in? You know, are you willing to put yourself out there? Are you willing to be vulnerable knowing that by being making, by being vulnerable, becoming vulnerable and, you know, knowing that you're going to fail, that you're going to struggle, it's going to be difficult. Making that a deliberate, intentional choice to do that and putting yourself in those situations. I don't think a lot of people are willing and able to do that because they don't do it. They're less likely. And we also are benefit from this generational thing of it. We want to make our lives better for the next generation. So how do we do that? We want to make it easier, you know? And so we don't put our kids in these situations where they have to be uncomfortable. They have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And so if you go through your life at a certain point without this getting out of your comfort zone, you're really shortchanging your ability to, to grow through these experiences that are good, bad, and indifferent, right? And then what was your most memorable experience at West Point in one of the other two pillars that you mentioned, whether academia? Sure. 
So just academically, I really struggled, you know, and I will say that what I remember academically was just, you know, again, it goes back to that cooperate and graduate. There's a lot of times when I, I felt like I didn't belong there, especially going through the one particular building there that kind of houses like the, the sciences, right? Because you have to take chemistry, you have to take math, you have to take uh, heart. I mean, I was a couple of credits away from being a minor in math and I didn't even take calculus in high school, right? I avoided math like the play. I always had this belief that I wasn't good at math. I'm so glad that I did that, you know, because of exactly what we're talking talking about because I had to force myself to get good at math because if I wasn't good at math or at least good enough, then I wasn't going to graduate. But how did I do that? You know, I mean, it was putting the work in, putting the time in, but more importantly, it was seeking the other resources, the other people who were my peers who were good at it, you know, and I had this amazing group of people that I sought out who not only were good at, but were willing to tutor me. And I, I wouldn't have got through physics and chemistry and math if it wasn't for a group of guys who just had the empathy to, and that they were good and their friends or teammates to see that I needed help and willing and then willing to make my strengths or my weaknesses their strengths and then vice versa you know so that was super powerful to me you know the willingness to you know to help someone else is, is in need and I and I'm just forever in, in debt for those people and um, I won't mention it by name I think militarily I was one of those guys who's kind of too cool for school you know I think that I always knew in my mind that I was going to be a good leader and that I had what it took to be a good leader but like you know I really bucked kind of a lot of the discipline and the military things and tended to cut corners and I wasn't eaten up with the army. I couldn't relate to that. You know, I, I love the army for a lot of different reasons, but unfortunately, a big reason driving force why I was there was, you know, because it was how I got there in the first place was playing football. So unfortunately at the time, the military kind of took, took a back seat to that, you know, and it was an interesting time too because 9-11 hadn't happened until I graduated. And so we were, our focus was different and our focus was on peacekeeping in Bosnia and so on and so forth. And we didn't have the same sense of purpose I would say we have post 9-11, you know, so now every person that goes to West Point knows they're going to combat. Well, at the time, I joined the army in a peacetime army, you know, um, and so I wouldn't say it was easier, but it wasn't a driving force behind what I was doing. And if you were to ask any of my teammates or out of all those close guys I talked to you about, I'm the only guy who's still doing this, <laughs> you know, ironically, right? So yeah. I was the guy who was going to get out after five years and I was done with it. I'd be lucky to make lieutenant, let alone lieutenant colonel. And uh, here I am. Well, since that time, 22 years later, you know, I'm still doing it. I'm as shocked as anybody else. <laughs> so what did you do after graduation from West Point? So I said I got commissioned as a field artillery officer. So you think big guns, howitzers, firing big bullets, long distances, blowing stuff up. I love that about it. I love the quality of the, the officers that I was exposed to. There's a lot of, there's a tradition of it being football alumni, field artillery. So there's a tradition there that I was into. So I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which is the home of the U.S. Army's field artillery school. It's where they're training as I did my basic officer course there. And then at that time, I met my wife, the girlfriend then wife and she was a driving force for me wanting to uh, stay there at Fort Sill and then it really things started to kind of really ramp up we're good preparing to go uh, invade Iraq and it was part of that preparation and then we for we bypassed a, a big wedding down in Orange Texas where my wife's from to be able to have kind of a shotgun wedding up at the Old Post Chapel in Fort Sill Oklahoma with just close family and friends and literally got on a plane and flew over to Iraq to, to go to combat for the first time you know within you know about a month of being married and so that was that was a crazy time for me you know the, the prospect of going to combat as a young man is a daunting experience that, that I faced. And then where, where where did you go in Iraq? Yeah, so I went to went to Kuwait first. So I was a multiple launch rocket system platoon leader. So you're thinking about, you know, almost six of the size of the MLRS is what it is. And I was a platoon leader. So I had, you know, about 30 guys and I had three of these multiple launch rocket systems. And we were part of the invasion force crossing the berm, if you will. The berm being the, the border between Iraq and Afghanistan to make that long push up to Baghdad. Um, and so I was a part of that, you know, 
know, and, and it was crazy, crazy not only because of, you know, we weren't really prepared for what we were up against and everybody was really green. We had some veterans from the Desert Storm, different conflict, but just not knowing what was, what you were going to face was crazy. But I was up to the task. My battalion commander put me in charge of kind of, he made me the point man, which at the time, my GPS probably was about the size of this laptop. And I remember sitting in a large tent, laying out all these maps of the entire country of Iraq and having to navigate across the desert with 500 vehicles behind me. That, that was the task that my boss gave me. And it was, and he's still a great friend and mentor today too. And I, I think, I thank God that he had the faith in me to do that. It was a big job and I didn't take it lightly. He was a VMI football player and kind of goes back in my mind where, you know, at West Point, we've got this quote by George Marshall says, I want to officer for a singer's dangerous mission. I want a West Point football player. George Marshall was a VMI grad, was not even a West Point grad. And uh, we touched that before we go. And it's kind of like the, you know, our tradition at West Point. I put that in the back of my seat, wrote it in Sharpie marker, you know, because that to me was, this was the ultimate performance to me. My boss wanted to, they had, we had a dangerous mission and he put me in charge and I didn't take that lightly. And so that was my first big experience going into, into combat. And you said 30 guys under you? Yeah. Amazing group of guys, amazing group of non-commissioned officers. Specifically, these are the guys who really, you know, have come in right out of high school and they have all the experience and you as a young guy, you know, you don't have all of the experience, but they're really your guides, your advisors, your mentors, you know, and I, I really had a good, good group of guys who uh, made that raised me and made sure that I was, you know, successful as their leader. And then really we made taking care of each other the first and foremost priority. And then what was your biggest takeaway combat tour? A couple things. I mean, one, just, I think I was trained, I, I was able to, it's like, this is the game, right? So going back to sports, this was the ultimate test. This is the game, right? You know, so everything you do up to this point is the preseason or it's the, you know, the scrimmage, it's the practices, it's the mundanity of excellence, if you will. All the things, attitudes, behaviors, the training you do, to act and react, and it all culminates in this, in this game and this opportunity to call combat. I think for me, you know, being able to let those skills out and trust my teammates in combat for the first time and then being able to collectively perform at a high level and do our jobs, even if there were things that we weren't prepared for, to be able to adapt was a byproduct of those collective attitudes, behaviors, and our training. And you, you relied on your training and you let that skill out in combat, just like you do when it, whether or not, you know, you're, you know, you're going to go to a boardroom to do a big pitch. If you're in the corporate sector or you're an athlete getting ready to go play a big game, it's all transferable. And I think the biggest thing that I took away was just having a good attitude. I remember getting a compliment from a, a company commander, captain, and he said, hey man, you, you, you know, your biggest strength is having a great attitude. And that really stuck with me. Something I, I went back to even as a football player is like, hey, if you have a choice, if you know, when shit hits the fan, if the choice that you have and the control you have over anything, everything else is out beyond your control is how you choose to think and your attitude. And, and that was no more prevalent than my first combat experience is the importance of an effective attitude. And then you, you mentioned the mundanity of excellence. Can you describe a little bit of that, of what that is and kind of what that looks like? Yeah, man, it, it's just putting the work in. I really think, you know, people think about the, the championships like, you know, hey, we're, you know, let's talk about our Golden State Warriors. This one or their second championship. People think about being at the, on the peaks, but we live our lives in the valleys and, and we're the things that aren't sexy, that aren't fun, getting up early, putting the work in when you're you're tired, you're hungry, you're sick, you're not 100%, you got dealt a bad hand, you're making the best out of a shitty situation, you know, but you're putting the work in anyways, and you're diligent about it, you're intentional about it, you're deliberate about it, and you do those things day in, day out, that eventually, that training is, and then being able to then develop that skill, let that skill out, and then eventually then let that, bring that skill in through training, eventually trust that skill and let it out when it matters the most, I think is the where the mundanity of excellence kind of comes in. 
is it's the excellence comes from doing the mundane things through your attitudes and behaviors, those little micro moments is what leads to those moments. And when you're hoisting the trophies, you know, and then being able to do it successfully means you got to work even harder because now you get the target on your back. And I think that's where that, that, that's what that means. There's a great article, forget the author that talks about the mundane excellence. I'll share it with you. You got back from your first combat tour and then what happened next? Yeah. So I really started a new life. You know, I was married and my wife you know, had a successful career. She's an architect in Houston and moved up to Oklahoma to meet with me. We, you know, so just come back from combat. We moved, you know, we're now moved in together, you know, and so we had to form our bond as a married couple now and then figure that out. And that, you know, and that had its challenges. I mean, everybody goes through that as a couple. And then we decided to start a family and I stayed at Fort Sill. I was picked up to go work for a two-star general there to become a speech writer, which is a really cool experience because, you know, as a young officer, it exposed me to so many cool things, not only in terms of influential people, but in terms of decisions that are made at a level that I would never have been exposed to. I commanded a basic training unit, which is pretty cool. So, you know, you're talking about the uh, force generating and bringing people in, making them soldiers, and then sending them off to combat within six months. I mean, it was the, and then being a part of that pipeline and getting these guys ready to go to combat was a really cool experience for me, you know, and how you do that, how you go about doing that, seeing that process, people going from civilians to become soldiers to become warriors was a really cool experience. And then I went to school again and I, then the big mission that I got was a part of us to become a combat advisor. And that's to train, advise, and assist the Iraqi army because we were trying to stand them up so we could stand down. And this was my first exposure to special forces because that's traditionally their job. But there is so such a small community. They, they have to scope their train, advise, assist mission to their elite forces in an indigenous arm, army. So in this case, is the Iraqi Special Operations or SWAT, that they're tier one forces. But you think about how big the Iraqi army was, especially they were standing it up. There's not enough advisors to go around. So they were taking literally regular officers like me, sending them to get trained up for three months in language, weapons, forming, you know, throwing them together in small teams and then sending them to combat. And that's what I did. I did that. So I went back again in 2008 as a combat advisor to the Iraqi army. And then what was that experience like? Man, it was, uh, it, it was, you know, if my first combat experience, I would say the man-making experience, you know, toward where you get that first one in your belt, you learn what it's like to be a leader in combat. This was complete uh, maturation as a combat leader. This was the, to me, this was like the master's level experience, master's PhD level experience that I that I really went through uh, because I was completely out of my comfort zone. Not, there was no way you could train someone up to go work with a foreign army, you know, and teach them how and, and literally go side by side with them to combat in a war zone in Mosul, Iraq, where I was. And then, you know, and didn't have the experience to be able to do that. There was nothing that could have prepared me for that. And so it was really a test in patience. It's really where I learned about how to take my appetite suppressant <laughs> for and manage your expectations and then and then learn how to influence people. Those three things were the critical of my success. And we struggled with it mightily. You know, we struggled even internally to get along because we were all thrown together and pushed together, let alone being able to be effective as a, as a team. And then we did that for 15 months. I had over 100 combat missions up there, Mosul, Iraq. And man, I had some really crazy experiences. Very frustrating, very happy at times. Again, that was my first exposure to U.S. Special Forces because I had a mentor that was doing that mission and he was talking to me, hey, if you're enjoying this, you know, we need guys like you in our community. And so that's kind of where I got tipped off on that. And then just like your brother-in-law was influential and his his friends were on you, what skills did you display and what character did you display to have the Iraqi armies that, that kind of, that you were training to get mm-hmm. them to, uh, to buy into what you were doing in terms of training them and, and getting them on mission? What did you have to do? Who did you have to be to, to really accomplish that? Yeah, man, that's a great question. I think, first of all, I would say 
say it's it's love. You know, love is such a powerful thing, and people have to know you care, and before they care what you know or what you have to offer, right? So you have to give a shit. And so I think, especially the Middle Eastern culture, you know, it's we're very business oriented, we're very transactional. So it's like we're all about bottom line up front, and then you know, achieving our goals and moving on. And so the Middle Eastern cultures, you know, it's very it's relational, it's, very, it's tribal in nature, you know. So it's like, hey, I want to get to know. It's not transactional. I, I want to know who you are as a person. What makes you tick? How you see the world? What you care about? About you, your family, where you're from, and so on and so forth. And we're going to talk about that on the daily before we even get to picking up a rifle, you know, or entering and clearing a building. Uh, we're talking to a helicopter about to launch a Hellfire missile on an objective, you know. So to me, it was, I learned quickly, you know, especially studying behavioral science later on, that people are very, are more similar than they are different. You talk about Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, and, and that was no more, couldn't be a bit on more display for me at that time because these people, if they didn't, if the Iraqi people did not have the basic things like security, they could not secure the people, their, their people where they lived, if they didn't have food, water, a means of making money to provide for their family, then nothing else mattered, right? And so I think that they needed to know that we as Americans could empathize. Empathy is huge. And that took a lot of, you know, a lot of time to invest in them personally, to get to know them, for them to get to know me. And they understood that I cared. I mean, just doing the little things like playing soccer with them. I mean, coming over and I always joke around, man, those guys watch three things, soccer, Tom and Jerry, or Van Damme movies. And I freaking drank a lot of chai and I smoked a lot of cigarettes and I played a lot of soccer, man. And that was, it sounds funny, man, but those are the keys to success in combat. That's something that you can't shortcut in terms of building those relationships. You can't just be going in and like, okay, I'm going to spend the next two hours for the next five days to build this relationship with this person. Like, it's not like linear like that, you know? It's yeah, and it is. Man, I just learned so much and I, I loved it. You know, I love my interpreters. Those guys were awesome, man. That was one of my jobs I had over there. I, you know, if I have guilt about anything, it's because I wasn't able to get all my interpreters home to get them to the United States. I was able to get a couple of them over, but like those guys were huge and they were like my little brothers and I still have so much love for those guys. And I, sometimes, you know, you're watching the news and kind of what went down on Mosul and, it, you know, those are my guys that I trained there. Those are the guys that ISIS supposedly plowed through on their way to their way to Baghdad, but then they're also the same guys who, who stood back up and formed the resistance that are fighting back today against them, you know? So I have a lot of pride uh, for them. I mean, I still feel like they're my people, you know? And then this requires a lot of social skills and emotional skills yeah. to be able to accomplish that mission. How would you describe what are emotional skills? Yeah, man, it's a great question. Um, it really boils down to three things, man. It's self-awareness. First and foremost, you have to understand what's working and what's not working. You got to know yourself first. You got to know your operating environment and then, you know, your situation, what you're up against, right? Then the second thing is self is self-regulation. You got to be able to, it's, it's, it's really, instead of being the thermometer where you're just reading the situation, you have to be the thermostat where you actually can read the temperature and you can actually slide that gauge to ramp up or ramp down and both mentally and emotionally in this case. And then the third aspect of that is, is influence. And so how do I positively affect the behavior of the attitudes and behaviors of others towards a common goal? And so those three things are what I would say are my three pillars of mental, emotional, mental, emotional, and social strength. And then what would you say is the number one thing someone could do to, to build their self-awareness, which of course is a lifelong journey. What's I think it's, it takes reflection and it takes feedback. You know, I think you, you can spend, we all have blind spots, first of all. And so I think it's, sometimes it's, it's having the honest conversation with the person who's in the mirror and recognizing we have a funny way of, our perceptions are really funny things about how we see ourselves. And we can, we have this incredible bias that we can skew things. So not only are we incredibly hard on ourselves, but we have a way of inflating ourselves to maybe they can set us up for failure, you know? So I think, you know, first of all, is having, is loving a lot with ourselves and specifically we have a goal is to 
understand, hey, where am I at now in relationship to making this journey to accomplish this goal, for example? And I think you could do that a couple of ways. You could do that through journaling. You could do that through just taking long walks. You could do through meditation, yoga, all kinds of things that are out there. I know our focus here isn't on the how-tos, but uh, you know, but I also think feedback is super important. And this is so important is to solicit feedback, and but to do it in the right way. Because there's an art and science to feedback that I think is lost on a lot of people, specifically your coaches. And I think, and there's a lot of good efficacy behind this is that you have your intentions have to be made clear up front like why am i giving you this feedback i'm giving this feedback because i want to make you better at what you do and it's not you're, you may not like what you're going to hear i'm not going to sugarcoat it because i think there's a generation that is dealing with uh, things that are inauthentic and so they they're seeking and they're starving for authenticity and realness so what's there's so much thing that are synthetic out there they want realness and they they're starving for that feedback because people who doesn't want to get better right so i think feedback is super important and you get it from multiple places not only the people who are close to you but the people who get these fleeting glimpses of your behavior that maybe these micro snapshots and but they have a tremendous impact in terms of whether or not you know you get a promotion whether or not you know you get an opportunity to start or play or whatever it is or they decide whether or not you know someone else is going to get an opportunity over you and it's not your time yet um, and so I think soliciting feedback is huge and, and knowing it's a gift thermostat analogy that sounds that connects with self-awareness you got to have self-awareness to be able to be that thermostat and then how does someone cultivate that in the ability to walk into a room or situation and, and be able to detach and see what is this I mean, this seems so important for from like a leadership perspective but like what does this room need right now yeah so you're talking like in a social situation yeah social situation or in terms of what yeah. we're doing in combat or in terms of you know you know getting ready to talk so there's a really cool there's, there's an art and science to this as well too really great book I recommend your leaders are that anybody is watching this read is called left of bang and, and this is based on this like situational awareness training right you know so it's based on the Marine Corps combat hunter program and the idea was like hey you know, improvised explosive devices were the number one killer on the battlefield for US service members for so long and, and we were always in react mode we couldn't anticipate this to counter this threat so they started really investing the human dimension on how to be able to become more situationally aware in order to be able to utilize that sixth sense if you will but it really is utilizing all your senses to be able to understand hey you know what's normal what's different what's establish a baseline as far as what's normal what's not is something off and then what are the anomalies and then make informed decisions that that may or may save your life and the life of other people so it's really kind of hey how do you pay attention to things you otherwise would you know be would be lost to you and so there's a there's a really cool science behind that that I encourage people to do but I think first and foremost establishing the baseline you know so it's like hey if I'm going to a situation where I've been there before either the environment is I know the environment and I know both the physical environment I know the social structure in the environment there too. You know, anything you do to be able to gather intelligence towards that is super important, you know? So it's like, know your audience. So if we're going to a social situation, I, I need to do as much homework as I can on that to understand who am I dealing with here? And then what's the environment going to be like? And then how do I maneuver within that operating environment in the human terrain? How do I, should I present myself as not only my authentic self, but to provide an initial impression to the people in that environment that is going to influence them for a, a specific purpose, right? And so, you know, just those fundamental basic things. I think just doing your homework on that is one of the things, but then at the same time, you may be in a situation where, you know, you haven't been able to do your homework. And so how do you trust your instincts knowing that you're sometimes your instincts can fail you when it comes to making optimal decisions that are going to lead to desirable outcomes? That's such a powerful skill just in terms of, I think, the leadership and teamwork and just being able no doubt. to recognize it's not about me and my personality and what I'm going to say. It's, it's about being able to read the, the situation and read the room and what exactly does does this group need 
need. And then I think of like the importance of being a lifelong learner and educating yourself. So you have a, a pretty large bandwidth in the toolkit of how much to be able to provide something that this room needs, you know, to be able to do. Yeah. This. And it may be the thing what they don't need. I mean, sometimes like you're, like you're saying, you know, is it being able to read those situations. And, but I think the key is just being, you know, taking what you know, first of all, and then being very intentional and deliberate about it, making it a mission versus just winging it. I mean, whenever you just wing any performance, decreasing the likelihood that it's going to lead to an optimal outcome that you want, or that you're, you know, more importantly, that your team needs and wants. Cause like you said, it's not about you. It's about the guy to your left and your right. And then you came back from teaching the Iraqi army and special forces requested for you to do some work with them. Yeah. So, um, so that was, that was later. So I actually had the opportunity to go teach at West Point and yeah. So, you know, one of the cool things about doing that assignment and is that, uh, they gave me my choice of assignment because it was a difficult assignment. I missed the birth of my son. My second son, Jonah was born while I was there. Ironically, I lived next to Prophet Jonah's tomb, that totally unrelated thing. Uh, you know, met him when he was six months old. I was at the 10 year mark. I had no service obligation left. My wife and I just wanted to pull off on the roadside of life and figure things out. You know, I always wanted to go back to West Point because going back to Chris, what he wanted to do. So I was like, I want to go back and I want to teach at West Point because this is part of my mission that I need to get done for Chris. So, so I did that. And then I was like, I was just stoked because even though I left West Point and probably flipped it the bird on my way out, I wanted nothing to do with it. To go, the opportunity to go back and to be the guy, the instructor that I wanted to be and work with cadets was really cool. And I also work in the department that I did so much work with at the time. And it was cool. It's funny how life works. The guy that I worked with as a football player, when I first, it was at the Center for Enhanced, West Point Center for Enhanced Performance. I could tell you about that as a guy named Captain Carl Olson. And then Captain Carl Olson went on as an infantryman, went off on his career after I was a cadet. And then he went back to Penn State, got his PhD, came back to be the director of the Center for Enhanced Performance and remembered working with me when he was a captain and I was a cadet. And he brought me back and he brought me back as a direct fill and they needed some help. I just came out of combat. So I had a lot of experience that I could relate to. They couldn't send me to school like a normal instructors do. But at the time I was like, I didn't want an additional service obligation by accruing more time to go get my master's degree, which, you know, now I wish I would have had the opportunity to do it, but it just really worked out. And so I came on board and started teaching at West Point for two years. I was teaching at the West Point Center for Enhanced Performance, which takes the best practices of sport performance psychology and then translates them to the three pillars of the academy, both primarily athletics, military leader development, and also academic time. So they, they're really kind of the um, an advanced version of what you would have at a normal university's student support center. But instead of focusing on academics, it focuses on every aspect of the academy mission. And so I was mainly working in the extension of West Point SEP, which is the Army Center for Enhanced Performance. So since about the early 90s, when the SEP was unique, all these cadets and graduates were going back out to the Army and they were demanding to get this skills taught to their formations. So as an extension of the academy, they developed the Army Center to go develop these mobile training teams of experts to go to the different installations all over the Army to help teach mental skills training to soldiers and units all over the Army. And so in order to meet any of that demand, they developed the Army Center for Enhanced Performance. And that's where I primarily worked. So I was working mainly on the military applications of sport performance psychology, which was really cool. And then you did two years there? Yeah, I did two years there. Was really lucky. This is when in response to, you know, a bad thing, specifically high suicide rates, the Army developed its resilience program in conjunction with the University of Pennsylvania. So I spent a lot of time down working with them. One of the giants of psychology is Marty Seligman, uh, Karen Rivich, who wrote the resilience factor. And so we, we 
developed, we took this program to teach resilience to soldiers, family members, and Army civilians, and we adapted it. It was initially adapted for, initially intended for fifth and sixth grade teachers, and we took it, and I was part of the team that then developed the curriculum for soldiers. And uh, that was a really cool thing to be a part of, especially a guy who wasn't deep in psychology, to be around giants, both at the academy and at UPenn was a really cool thing for me. And then in terms of being a team member, you were probably able to use that as an advantage as you were coming from a different perspective on how the soldiers, how they, how receptive they will be to the training methods and the practices, right? Because you'll be able to kind of be like the, the everyday soldier in terms of, oh, maybe we should try this in terms of how we should teach it. Yeah, that was super cool because a lot of the folks who were teaching us who were the experts were civilians and some of them had served in the military. So having a guy come in who is, you know, just coming from the front lines, coming out of combat in a difficult deployment and then, you know, to be able to then and be able to speak that language, you know, both athletically and militarily and how that applied to life, like, you know, was an advantage for me. So I had a lot of personal experience and then how to apply it and adapt it. Whereas, you know, I didn't have the depth and breadth knowledge in terms of the science behind it, how it should be taught. So it was a really kind of cool combination of things. And guys like, that's how I met Mike Gerson, Dr. Mike Gerson, your previous guest, is that he was one of the civilian trainers and he was down at Fort Bragg. So we started developing, we started at the, so the center was, came out of West Point and was tied there. The, you know, the hub and the spoke, if you will, the spokes were, you know, we started off with one site and developed a six. Now there's, now there's a, ver- there's a site that has experts like Mike Gerson, not as good as Mike, I'll say, but uh, all over the army now. So it's, it was a program that developed in its infancy while I was there and then really expanded and took off after I left. And then how is, resi- how can we cultivate the skill of resilience on a day to day? You know, again, I think it's being, it's being willing to put yourself out there and have these experiences that are beyond your comfort zone. And, and whether that's trying new things, whether that that's, you know, doing something you're unwilling, you otherwise be willing to, to undo just the day after. Maybe that's, I'm not a morning person. Hey, getting up an hour earlier, you know, abstaining from eating something that you otherwise would eat, you know, because you know it's not good for you. And maybe it's reaching out to a friend who's going through a hard time, sure whether or not it's the right time or situation to, to see how they're doing. Those are the things, it's those little micro habits that I think develop resilience because if you wait until you get punched in the mouth and, and life is going to hand it to you, it's too late. You haven't developed the skill set enough to where it can now, you can let that skill out. And then when did you work with the Army football team when you were teaching at West Point? Yeah, I did. I did. And that was really cool, especially because that it's a brotherhood, you know, and it's, it means a lot to you. And I wish I could have had to work with him more, but I think Colonel Olson at the time knew better because he, you know, I was too emotionally attached to them. So, but I also was involved in other things that were very important at the time and specifically the Army Resilience Program. But yeah, it was really cool. Got a chance to work with some individual athletes, work with the team in the off season, you know, and was able to do it just enough. And, and it was really cool to be a part of that team then because they were, they won 10, had a winning, first winning season since the 96 season, the year before I got there, uh, won the bowl game, had this amazing success. You know, we thought it really was a watershed moment for the academy. They weren't quite ready to turn the corner. I think they're turning the corner now. But to be a part of that, you know, having been a grad and having a lot of, having a, what I felt like I left a lot on the table and then feeling like I had a lot to give back to Army football and then being able to give back in a different way to help them succeed, to me, was was really things coming full circle to me. So it was special. And then what are you doing now? Yeah, so just fast forward after I left West Point, I went down, that's when I started working with Special Forces. I uh, was lucky enough to help stand up a brand new Special Forces Battalion, 4th Battalion, so Special Forces Group, take it to combat, and then bring everybody home. That's something I'm in plank holder in that unit and cut my teeth there. And then um, I went to Fort Lewis. What role did you play in terms of, you were a leader in the unit? Yeah, I was, which is really unusual for someone to be, to not be a Green Beret and be a support soldier and to be a leader. I was really fortunate to not only have 
because of the timing, but of the trust that other leaders, you know, had in me to, to be a leader in that unit and stand it up. It's something I'm incredibly proud of, but probably one of the most things that I'm the most proud of in my career. And why is that? I just think that it's one of those, I mean, there are very few people who get an opportunity to establish a unit in a culture, let alone in, in any endeavor, let alone in, a, in the U.S. Special Forces. And to think about that from a historical perspective, you know, is really cool. Knowing that you're the fourth guy to sign in that unit, knowing all the people that are going to go through there and all the things that they're going to accomplish and to know that you have been a part of that, the DNA of that unit and establishing that culture and specifically our investment in the human dimension physically up front. We had nothing else. We had no weapons. We had, you know, we didn't have a building built yet, man, but we, did we ever get after it physically? And to have been a part of uh, setting that tone with that group of guys who are just incredible professionals that are great friends. And then fast forward and we took it to combat and seeing all this come to fruition, go to combat and then everybody come and be successful in combat in Afghanistan and then bring everybody home, their families. I mean, that's just a, how could you not be proud of that? And then where was that in Afghanistan? Uh, I was in Kandahar province. So then I, you know, I started off as the operations officer. So I was in charge of all of the, all of the training and preparation for combat operations. Then I shifted gears to my traditional role to be the fire support officer, basically, you know, in charge of putting warheads on foreheads and helping green berets bring the fight to the enemy. You know, it's dropping bombs out of an airplane, out of a howitzer, out of a rocket, a mortar or whatever it is, kind of helping being the head guy that helps bring the scun in and protect our boys was something that uh, was really cool to be a part of, uh, specifically as a qualified joint terminal attack controller, which is a really cool skill to have. And, you know, being one of the few army officers that was able to develop that skill set and then apply it in combat was super cool. Can you describe that skill a little bit more in depth? Yeah. So you think it's a joint terminal attack controller is qualified service member who basically, you know, you'd say the word control, but really what they're doing is coordinating the delivery of ordnance from multiple platforms. So you think of a, a fighter jet, you think of, you know, calling for fire, you know, and, you know, firing a howitzer or a rocket, a Tomahawk missile, a mortar system operated to is their job is to be able to, to be the orchestrator and the coordinator of all these multiple fires assets, you know, to help not only protect, but to conduct offensive operations against the enemy. And so that our job was to, to train Green Berets who have multiple 12 men on the team. Our job was to train them to have that as an additional skill set, but to be the subject matter expert to lead that they can lean on to help, you know, do all this coordination of joint fires assets in the combat specifically. You know, so the only guy who's really allowed to tell an aircraft to uh, drop a bomb is a JTAC on the ground. And so I was a senior JTAC. And so for my battalion commander, it was Lieutenant Colonel, I was a senior JTAC. And then you'd have multiple JTACs or Air Force guys, or maybe they're Green Berets who were trained in that skill set were, were spread out all over the province in Southern Afghanistan. So valuable. And so you got to be on it, right? Because when the when the guys on the ground, when they need the bombs, that means they need the bombs probably ASAP, right? Man, you talk about performance under pressure, man. And it's the uh, ultimate, you know, the mental game is so huge on that because you think about being from an attention control perspective alone, if you imagine, you know, it's like being an air traffic controller is the way I describe it. So you imagine in combat, you know, if you get in a troops in contact situation, you're on the ground, you imagine, you know, every all these assets moving to support you, right? And so everything is, you become the number one priority. So you have multiple aircraft, you know, maybe you have an unmanned aerial air, aircraft that's providing a feed, who's talking to you, you've got multiple fighter jets, maybe you have an AC-130, um, you know, you're talking to your commander on the ground and you're still firing and maneuvering as a soldier. But meanwhile, you're coordinating all these 
these assets that are all around you that just want to bring hell on the enemy, you know? And so the reason why I had a job is because early on in the war, there wasn't enough people who had that skill set, that expertise. So there's a lot of fratricide early on in the early campaign, especially in Afghanistan. So that's when they started bringing fires experts on board. And so, you know, it was well recognized. I mean, JTAC saved Green Beret's lives and that's uh, tried and true, you know? So to kind of have been in charge of that program and be in charge of that skill set was like an incredible responsibility but something I was like super fired up about it, man, you know? And it, I just had that. It really played into who I was as a, having that fullback mentality, man, and just bringing the fight to the enemy. And so, you know, we had a great group of guys who were really invested in that program and that skill set. That's amazing. And then you guys all came home. Yeah. And what was next for you? So the next thing is like, you know, I, I kind of said earlier, like we live our lives in the valleys, right? You know, so we, <laughs> we have these peaks and then, you know, you have these valleys and, you know, uh, inevitably the more senior you get and you've got to spend your time, you got to give your pound of flesh, if you will, to be become a staff officer, you know? So I had to go back to the conventional army. So I went up to core level, which is, you know, three-star general level staff at uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord. And that was really cool because uh, the guy who brought me up there was a uh, General Bob Brown, who was an amazing leader. And he was the first captain to teach at the Center for Enhanced Performance. And so he has a similar background I did. And he was starting up a, a staff agency to oversee all of the health, resilience, and performance-related programs, not only at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which is about 40,000 people, but they also, the core was in charge of these other units that were like in Hawaii and Alaska and Japan as well. So I was kind of um, the number two guy in charge of being a program manager now at the staff level. So that was cool. So I kind of went back into, I'd been involved heavily, not only in addition to all my tactical job, I was involved in Thor 3, which is basically the Special Forces Human Performance Program and helping them develop what that looked like to support the tactical athlete, you know, in terms of developing their mental game. They had strength and conditioning coaches and they had nutritionists and they had physical therapists and doctors and they even had uh, psychologists. How do we, how are you helping Green Berets and these, how are you helping them develop the mental part of their game, knowing that so much hinges on the, you know, how mentally strong these guys are individually and collectively. So I was part of West Point and then I went back to the higher macro level of managing, managing those types of programs for the conventional side of the army, which at that time, it was really all over the place, you know, multiple pots of money, multiple, then, you know, you, it's very stovepipe-ish. People weren't talking to each other. There's a lot of redundancy going on. There's a lot of inefficiency. And so our job was to kind of corral these people together to be able to not only speak with one voice, but to combine their efforts to support the war fight. And then what are you doing now currently? Yeah. So then after that, I did two years there and, you know, then I, um, and then I went back to 10 special forces group here at Fort Carson and I got an opportunity just to go one higher level. So instead of being at the battalion level, you know, where there's, I was a principal advisor to a Lieutenant Colonel. I then became the principal fires expert and advisor to the, the group level for the 10th special forces group. And there's five active duty groups between the battalion and the group. Yes. It just levels and levels of hierarchy. So, you know, there's uh, about six battalions within a group. So the group is the higher organization. And so then there's five active duty groups um, and they all have, they all split up the world in terms of their areas of responsibility. So seventh group is primarily focused on Central and South America, even though we had units, obviously like us, like our fourth battalion was going in and out of Afghanistan. The 10th Special Force group mainly focuses on uh, Eastern Europe, you know, and they obviously have units that go in and out of Afghanistan as well too. So I went from, you know, seventh Special Forces group, everything at the battalion level. And then fast forward, I went back, came here to Fort Carson, Colorado, where I am now to work with the 10th Special Force group to be the senior fires uh, officer in, in that group. That's amazing. And I have a, a few rapid fire questions that I like to end with here. Andy, but before I do, you mentioned earlier in terms of who wouldn't want to get better. You know, everyone wants to get better. Who's like 
a lot of people outwardly, proactively seek to improve their situation, improve their skills and their craft, to improve their situation in life. And I'm wondering, where is the disconnect there? And what do you think, what do you think happens where, I, I agree with you, I think where we all have this innate sense where once we're on mission or on path that I want to improve, I want to educate myself, I understand the benefits for myself and those around me. But what do you think happens where, where people kind of just, they get off that? Can you give me like a specific context? Like give me a context where maybe you've experienced that or you want to. Sure. I'll go back to time I spent at, at Castlemont with the high school football players there where for many of them, so this is from personal experience, I can bring it out to a lot of high school males where it's all about trying to do as little as possible yeah. day, whether that's academically, whether that's athletically. And of course, I mean, if, if you're doing that in those areas, probably doing it in other areas of your life. And I'm wondering, I guess my question is, is in terms of a leader and as a human performance expert, how can we really get people to, to get back to this innate want to improve myself and my situation? It's a great question. And I think it really is the role of the leader to tap into your people's why. I think that's incredibly important. I don't think we spend enough time investing in people. And again, it goes back to, you know, the transactional versus uh, relational model that, you know, I use with the Iraqi army. And so it takes a lot of effort, time, energy to reach people on an individual level to where you're saying, hey, why are you here? You know, who are you, first of all, and why are you here? And why are you doing this, right? So, okay, so no one pointed a gun at your head and said, you have to come out and try out for the football team, right? Okay, so you're here for a reason. Why is that? And to really kind of peel that back and to understand what makes that person tick. How do they see the world? How do they see themselves? How do they see others? What is the purpose that is driving what they do or don't do, you know? And, and that's different for everybody. And that's what's so interesting about human performance is an inside out type of thing. Sports psychology tends to focus on the individual. It gets sometimes a bad rap for that, you know, it isn't when really the focus of sports is the team, but really to be the best version of your, to be a great teammate and contribute to the team, you have to be, you know, focus on yourself first. I think as leaders, that's where it really starts is at the individual level, spending time, the people to figure out what makes them tick and then figure out what you can do to influence them. So if you understand who somebody is and why they're there, you, you begin to start to paint a picture and connect dots in terms of like how you can then influence people towards a common goal, because then you could really tap into that when you have this collective vision uh, as far as what the future looks like. And then you can start to really develop a roadmap uh, about the attitudes, the behaviors, um, the sexy things, the mundane things, that are, what it takes to get to that common vision. And that collective vision and those collective goals are tied to those individual motivations. Now you start to put something together. And so I think there's a lack of investment individuals and in understanding their why. Thank you for that. All right. So these are going to be some rapid fire questions. So you can only answer in a one word answer or one sentence. That's hard. That's hard for me, man. (laughs) Uh, Who is the most interesting person you have met in your life? Tom Allison, head scout for the Seattle Mariners. Super interesting guy. What are you better at today than you were a year ago? Humility. What is the most important life lesson you have learned in the last six months? What is the most important life lesson I've learned in the last six months? Compete every day. And what personal limits are you currently stretching? Learning how to become an aging athlete and still hang with the young guys. (laughs) Nice. Uh, We're going 90 minutes strong here, Andy. So I'll let you get on with your day. I know you are still currently serving. So I don't know how 
active you are in terms of social media or, or reaching out with the general public, but is there any particular place that you would like this audience, if they want to contact you, if they had any questions, if there's a place on social media or website or anywhere you would like them to go? Yeah, um, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way. I'm most active on LinkedIn. You can also, um, should my bio should be coming back up on the Mission 60 website. That's a management consulting company that I'm involved with. Also, Warrior Rising, which is a nonprofit that helps veterans become entrepreneurs, something I'm involved with as well. So those are the best places to find me. It's social media-wise, LinkedIn. Hey, Reese, appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Right, get after it. All right, man, that was great. Cool, man. I like that. Part of the reason I really love the podcast is the, the long form of it. Dig enough, and then we can get some really good stuff out. Out of it. No, that's cool, man. It's a really good questions. You did a really good job, you know, leading me. Hopefully I wasn't too long-winded. I, I tend to take the scenic route instead of the direct route. So I like the rapid fire questions. Yeah. Do you know what you're doing once you get to Georgia? Yeah. So like uh, young infantry and armor captains and lieutenants. And so I'm kind of in a schoolhouse there. And so, you know, they train a lot of people there at Fort Benning, but it's uh, going to be a great spot. Come visit me, man. You got to go check yeah. it out. Do you ever go to Georgia? You ever go to Atlanta? I'm not. No, I've not been to the South, but I would love to check it out. Like I said, my wife's She's in the area right now, so I can make a trip. You got to come out, man. You know, let me get out and get settled. It's really cool. It's where the Airborne School is. It's where you know guys they teach guys to jump out of planes. The Army Ranger School's there. Uh, Army Sniper School. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that's going on there. It's really historical. Um, you, know, you come crash in my place, man. I have a spare bedroom. You can come stay in some historical po- stuff on post. That's awesome. And then, what is uh, finishing your illustrious Army career? What does that look like to you? How do you finish that strong? It just looks like you know I have a hard time finishing. <laughs> strong and so you know it's like a, I just want to finish strong man do it on my terms and just feel good about having a 20 plus year career man my family is still intact my marriage is still intact and I left enough tracks to where you know the next generation is set up for success man they can keep hooking and jabbing you yeah. what about you man what's what does this look like for you what do you see this podcast going and everything else man yeah I just want to keep growing it well I'm in the process right now of actually creating a subscription box so I don't know if you're familiar with like the subscription box industry, but is this like the shoe box when you did your box opening? Remember your pocket? Yeah. So a big industry in the last couple of years that has really grown is a curated boxes, whether like it's for coffee or chocolates or books, but people sign up with these businesses to get like curated boxes of certain products that they want and they get a delivery every month. It's like, okay, if I want a curated box for coffee, I really enjoy coffee. Then this company is going to send me a, a box every month of different coffees that I might not have heard of, but are really high quality and they bring them every month. And I'm in the process of doing that for the performance industry where this podcast is, it's good. That's going to be, I want to kind of build my market from the podcast to support this subscription box. Yeah. I'm giving a portion of all revenue for the box to do what to kind of expand what I'm doing at Castlemont and expand it out from there in terms of bringing performance to inner athletes. So it's kind of like uh, the three pillar model. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, if you want to... I you, love one, yeah. If you could send me your new address, I'll make sure to box and... Uh, let's I will, thank you. I will send you that as soon as I have an address. Yeah. Crazy, my Packers are coming. I don't even know where the hell I'm going right now, so... Let's stay in touch and let's find a way to... How we can help each other moving forward and uh, I just appreciate you and what you're doing and... Uh, Likewise. Let's do it. All right, man. Get after it, buddy. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be on your show, man. It's really cool. Thanks, Bye. Sir. Bye.